Okay. Uh, so I worked for um, 16 and a half years for the U.S. Department of State as a regional psychiatrist. And uh, I've been a psychiatrist for a bit longer than that. But um, what I'm going to talk about today is some of what I learned in the State Department that I think might be helpful to you uh, as you think about heading out and uh, whether or not God's calling you to do mission work or if you're in missions work, uh, how to continue in it, and so on. So uh, just to give you a little idea of the background, when I was started with the State Department, I'd been in private practice uh, for 11 years in Asheville, North Carolina, and before that I was in an academic setting, and one of my friends called up, actually a friend from Louisville, who had worked for the State Department, and he said there was an opening, and this was in 1999, and uh, and he said that you know would I be would I be interested in this opening at the State Department? And at the time I was very frustrated with managed care, and so I told him, yeah, I think I would be. Um, so I interviewed in Washington, and uh, I did pretty well on the interview, and I asked, well, where do you think I would go? Uh, because um, I had in mind maybe uh, London. He'd been in Vienna, so I thought it might be Vienna, Austria, or Rome. I'd heard there might be a place in Rome. And they said, well, uh, you'll be going to Nairobi, Kenya. And I said, well, okay. Well, I hadn't thought about it too much. Uh, but uh, I said, well, that's good. I remember they'd asked me a lot of questions about what I would do if an embassy had been bombed where I was going to be. <laughs> and so... Um, so I, uh, I said, well, um, okay, I, I, rem- I knew there were giraffes there, and I'd never been to sub-Saharan Africa. And, uh, you know, they said, well, you're, you know, a lot of your work would be working with people who were uh, in the 1998 bombing because of, of the embassy there. So, okay. Then later I learned that, like, the, the embassy had requested that a psychiatrist come because there was so much psychiatric problem going on and they specifically said they did not want a new hire they wanted an expert in post-traumatic stress disorder but I was hired nobody who was a current psychiatrist wanted to go and so I went over there and actually it turned out to be a really interesting experience for me Um, so I won't go into all the ins and outs but I wanted to give you some idea of what I faced because the, the trauma that people had been through turned out to have different trajectories for different people. And for some people, it was the worst thing that ever happened to them in their lives. Uh, for other people, they kind of got back to more or less normal. And for others, um, they said this was actually a turning point in their life for the good. And so then the real question would be, what made the difference? Um, in this region that I was working at in East and Central Africa, uh, which I know some of you are familiar with, uh, there were, there were, there had been the Rwandan genocide, so I was covering Rwanda, uh, several years after the, the, uh, genocide. I was covering Uganda, the two Congos, um, and, uh, Sudan, uh, and later South Sudan. Um, then later, after I, I went back to Washington after three and a half years in Nairobi, and that was about the time that we invaded Iraq. And so um, I, um, I was sent into Baghdad to investigate our uh, sort of stuff there, what was going on, what were the resources for the State Department people. So here's me by the Tigris River, and here was the uh, Coalition Provisional Authority uh, in the Republican Palace in Baghdad with Saddam's head still uh, on the palace, but it was being taken off while we were there. So I was there with one of my other psychiatrist buddies, Ray DeCastro. Um, in my region was, I said, Rwanda. Here's the Thousand Hills. Uh, Rwanda is known as the land of the Thousand Hills. And when I was there, they were building this memorial to the victims of the genocide. So they were showing me how people had been um, been affected. So just because of circumstances, and I would say the Lord, I found myself uh, in in this sort of sea of potential trauma, disaster, and so on. Um, because of that, and because of dealing with a lot of people, I started thinking quite a bit about you know why some people do better 
and some people do worse. And toward the end of my career, a friend of mine in the State Department said, would you please come back and be our senior advisor on resilience for the department at the Training Institute in, in uh, Arlington? And so, yeah, I, w- I thought I was interested, but I didn't really know anything about resilience. And in fact, I thought it was sort of a new age concept, and I wasn't even sure I believed in it, but I really wanted a Washington assignment. And I went back and I got into it, and I began to realize that there were a lot of aspects of this concept of resilience that resonated with me as a Christian. And uh, so once I retired from the department, I wanted to sort of see if I could help somehow with some Christian organizations. So I ended up working with two in particular as a consultant. One was Open Doors, and the other was Samaritan's Purse. And, uh, and I want to share with you today some of what I learned because I think it's quite important to think about this in advance of something happening so that you can prepare, prepare yourself as well as you can. Now, healthcare workers in particular, I think, are an underserved population from a psychiatric and mental health standpoint. And Christian mental health work, Christian behavioral, Christian health workers are really underserved, okay, because, you know, Christians in general don't want to get mental health care as a rule, and then doctors don't want to get mental health care, and certainly nurses and other people in healthcare often don't. There are barriers in licensing and so on. So a lot of times people just kind of struggle along and can get into real problems. So I want to give you some tools to think about what problems you might face and how to, to deal with it and also to feel comfortable with getting care if it should ever happen, which probably won't. But anyway, so um, a psychologist at University of Minnesota, um, the Scoveholt, has worked out a a little cycle that I thought was helpful. He calls it the cycle of caring. And it applies to anybody who's really in human services, and doctors certainly qualify. So in in what we do, there's an empathetic attachment to the people we're serving, and then there's an active involvement with the person. Then there's leaving and separating when we do our job. And then there should be this sort of restoration where we're kind of regrouping and restoring ourselves. But a lot of times we don't, you know, that part gets omitted, and so uh, people can get ground down. There was a military psychologist I worked with named uh, Paul Bartone, who'd done a lot of work on the concept of hardiness. He researched military personnel in Iraq who had really low low morale. And he wanted to find out what the things were in their service that was grinding them down so much. And when I read his paper, I realized, well, this would really be true of people who are Christians working in an overseas setting as well. Um, So one was their ambiguous job duties. And I think if you work in in healthcare overseas, often you can find yourself in just really sort of, you know, situations you didn't expect. Um, Feelings of isolation. Uh, feelings of powerlessness to do anything about the situation. Uh, secondary trauma and compassion fatigue was a, a problem. I think more maybe for healthcare workers than it would be for military people. Um, exposure to poverty and economic inequ- inequity for the Americans, that can be particularly difficult. And if you've already served in some short or long-term mission things, you know how just puzzling this can be sometimes and hurtful. And then uh, the so-called worldview angst. I mean, kind of getting out there and looking at the suffering and what's going on and this not really understanding how could God allow a situation like this and, th- and thinking about that. And, and mil- I doubt the military people were thinking that, but this is how my application to us in terms of the worldview angst. So I want to mention these four categories of the impact of stress, which I'm not going to talk about at any length at all because I want to talk about resilience. But I want you to at least be aware of these in preparation for just dealing with your own situation and also the people that you're working with. So the first is compassion fatigue. So when I first went to Nairobi, I had really not heard of this concept at all. And the first person to ever mention this to me 
was uh, uh, somebody who was inter- with the International Committee for the Red Cross there in Nairobi who was part of the bombing response. And a lot of the people with USAID were super frustrated with the U.S. government response, and they were very angry. And people were angry at them for being angry, and it was a really difficult situation. And this woman with the, with the Red Cross just said, you know, they all have compassion fatigue. And I didn't understand that. But compassion, but the, then she explained it. That's just when people have given so much that they can't really give anymore, and they start to get a little bit disillusioned or something. Uh, and that can definitely happen not only overseas, but in healthcare work in general. You just get into this sort of compassion fatigue. Uh, related is burnout. Now, burnout, it's not a psychiatric diagnosis per se. It's not in DSM, but it's a very well-documented psychological concept. It's a work concept, so it doesn't usually persist when you go home. It's really just related to your your job. And when people are burned out, they get cynical about what they're doing. They start to feel like their values and the values of the organization that they're working for are not the same. And they start getting super tired and extremely exhausted. And so, uh, so that's burnout. So it's related to compassion fatigue. Then a, a third one to think about is this concept of vicarious traumatization. So this is where you yourself were not the victim of trauma, but you've been so exposed to stories of the trauma, graphic details and so on, that you start to dream about it and you start to think about it. And when when I was working for the State Department, people would get this who were uh, responsible for documenting atrocities, for example. You know, so they would go out and they'd have to, you know, work working for the UN or something and look, just talk to person after person after person who were telling them, you know, what had happened. And it just it could, it just got to be too much. And you can actually get symptoms that are very consistent with post-traumatic stress disorder from this kind of kind of work. And again, for people who work in ICUs or emergency rooms, sometimes they get symptoms like this. And then, uh, and then there, finally there's full-blown post-traumatic stress disorder where you're having the dreams of, uh, of what happened and you're emotionally numb and you're just feeling like, you know, so the world is very negative. You get these sort of negative views of things, jumpy, if it, uh, especially with violent. Um, things and so on. Some of those are more important than others. And just as a shortcut to think about, well, what what do you worry about? Because a lot of these things pass if you've been in through a traumatic event. But when people start getting emotionally numb and say they can't feel anymore, that's a real negative uh, predictor for how people are going to do uh, following a trauma. Also, though, I want to make clear: most people who go through a traumatic event recover from it. So most people don't get PTSD, actually. So about the statistics are roughly 60 or 60 or so percent of people don't develop PTSD and maybe 30 to 40 percent do. But even of that group, a lot of that resolves over uh, time. Um, but some need treatment, obviously. So that, that's kind of the, the quick shorthand for why I want to think about resilience. Because the whole concept of resilience, as we understand it now, came out of two different sort of problems or interesting phenomena. One was the phenomena of people going through trauma and then doing well. Some people, like, why did some people do well and others didn't? And the other was children who'd grown up in disadvantaged circumstances, like our last speaker, you know, had these very difficult circumstances, and yet did really well. Okay, there's studies of schizophrenic children of schizophrenic parents. And about half of those kids do way better than you would think. You know, about half of them don't do well because they had these emotionally, you know, distant or strange parents. But then others do. And so why is that? And why is it that some people go through traumatic events and do better than others? And that's, that's what we're thinking about when we're thinking about the concept of resilience. And the, the ten resilience factors I'm going to talk about shortly are derived from this type of literature. So, um, here are four useful concepts that are related. The first is hardiness. So I mentioned that my psychologist buddy Paul Bartone was into hardiness. So hardiness is a psychological trait that is it's just this inborn trait. And some people we know are just 
kind of can do it better than others. And some people are just born to go through adverse circumstances better than others. Now, anybody can get worn down. The most resilient people can be worn down with time and difficult circumstances. But some are constitutionally uh, more able to withstand than others. So the, the three components of hardiness that uh, the psychologists talk about are people who are hardy have a sense of control over their circumstances, so it's hard for them to be caught off guard. They kind of, you know, feel like they're ready for it. Um, they're people who are able to be very committed to what they're doing. They're not, you know, super ambivalent about stuff. And they're people who are tolerant of change. They adapt to change well. So that's hardiness. A second one you may have heard about is uh, the concept of grit. Um, and so this is, a again, it's a psychological concept. Um, and it involves um, persistent people and people who are passionate about what they do. So, you know, this has been found to be characteristic of a lot of leaders of humanitarian organizations. Uh, so they're just, they're, they just kind of go for it. I work a lot with Samaritan's Purse, and Franklin Graham is kind of known as this kind of person. He, he's not necessarily somebody you'd want to spend a weekend with, although we like Franklin a lot. Uh, but um, he, uh, and he, and he's very passionate about what he does, and he's very persistent in what he does. And he, he really has a heart for, for God's work, too. But uh, So grit is uh, persistence and passion. And then finally, this concept I'm about to talk about more is resilience, which is the ability to bounce back after something traumatic has happened and the ability to thrive under pressure. So there are two parts of this. And there's actually a whole paper written on different definitions of resilience, but almost all the definitions have this two-part aspect to it. So when I was at the State Department, we had a little team that worked on this. It was four people, and they cynically called themselves the Lord's Resilience Army, um, and um, which is kind of sick because it was based on the Lord's Resistance Army, but um, which is a horrible group in Uganda. But anyway, they, they weren't Christians, and they called us the Lord's Resilience Army. But, um, but we our definition was people who could bounce back after... Uh, these uh, stresses and who could thrive under pressure. Now, the final thing I want to mention to you is this philosophical concept of virtue, which started occurring to me after I began to try to integrate the resilience stuff with Christian thinking. And um, virtue, you may, I don't know if you have sort of a philosophical bent, you know that there's a lot of philosophy out there now and theology about virtue ethics. And it's a very interesting area of ethics, and it's very kind of um, compatible with Christian thinking. A lot of it comes from Catholic thinking. So virtue, uh, and this is a definition from St. Thomas Aquinas. So virtue is that which makes its possessor good. Of course, this is with the Lord, in the Lord. That which makes its possessor good and his work good likewise. So this is really something we want to do. We want to do the things that make us better and that make our work better. Okay? So. Um, so here are the seven classical virtues, faith, hope, and love. And then, the, um, so, you know, if you, this is very biblical because these are the theological virtues so from 1 Corinthians 13 and other places. And these other four are called the cardinal virtues because they are, are uh, cardinal in Latin refers to sort of a hinge so these are virtues on which other things hinge, other virtues hinge. And they're prudence or practical wisdom, temperance, justice, and fortitude. So I'm not going to go through all these, but I wanted to mention prudence because prudence, and this is from St. Augustine, prudence is love choosing wisely between the things that help and those that hinder. Okay, so this is, if you think about this a little bit, this is pretty good because being prudent is sort of planning ahead, thinking about how to do good the best way. And uh, so it's motivated by love, and you're trying to choose wisely between things that help and things that hinder. So that, that's why I think we should study resilience, because it, it's, it's, we'll, we'll start learning about things that will help our Christian character. So we've talked about resilience in terms of the definition. 
Now, resilience has one other quality, and it's kind of it's got two aspects to it. It's a state and a trait. So it's something that fluctuates. So it's a state. So sometimes people are more resilient than others, and it's a trait. So some people are just innately more resilient. Um, and that's important because that implies that this is something you can shape. When I first started presenting this stuff at the department, people would say there, there's no point in trying to teach this because some people are just more resilient than others. And that, actually, we don't think that's fully true, okay, that you can teach aspects of this and that it does make a difference if you practice these resilience practices. So why would people who are medical missionaries or in medical missions want to do this? Well, first of all, there's a high rate of disillusionment among people who do humanitarian work. It's well documented. So, you know, people go out with an idea of what they're going to do, and, you know, the you know, first several months is okay, and then you keep going and going, and over time, between the personalities and the hardships and the miscommunications and so on, there's a really high rate of attrition among people who do humanitarian work. So it's important to, to attend to resilience so that we can persist in what God wants us to do, and it's also important because there's a high personal stress of not attending to resilience. And, in fact, that's why people wanted to kind of develop this stuff at the State Department was because, you know, people would end a 30-year career and have two divorces or three divorces and be alcoholic and in trouble with diplomatic security and so on because they hadn't attended to these things. And so they wanted to see how can we, how can we prevent this. So, you know... Here's just some things, substance abuse, the unexplained irritability from people who aren't attending to their resilience, getting emotionally detached, depressed, or even this issue of moral injury, which I'm sure you must have heard about, the, but the idea that you actually did something wrong in the part of some kind of, you know, traumatic thing, disaster, whatnot, you, you were part of the problem, and now you're dealing with the guilt related to that. That's moral injury, and how do we deal with that? So here, here are the ten resilience factors. So this is, there are more than ten, but you know, we only have so much time. And um, these are based on the work of, um, of Stephen Southwick and Dennis Charney, who are two prominent uh, psychiatrists. One is at Yale and one is at, at Mount Sinai. And if you want to follow up on this and read more, a really good book is their book called Resilience, the Science of Mastering Life's Greatest Challenges. And it's got lots of, you know, it'll, it'll, it'll sort of flesh these concepts out more. And it's got a lot of research to read up uh, further if you want to. But um, they base their work not only on the, the children of schizophrenics and the, the um, children from disadvantaged backgrounds, but also on the POWs uh, who returned from Vietnam, people like John McCain, or Jeremiah Denton, and people who'd come back after these extreme circumstances in prison, but actually were felt to have done pretty well as a group. And they interviewed a number of them and, um, and derived these resilience factors, combining it with the, the other literature. So the first thing that characterizes uh, resilient people was that they had sturdy role models. So these were people... Who they, now I'm not talking about a mentor either. I'm talking about a role model. So these were people who kind of read up on somebody. It might be a historical person. It might be something like their father or somebody. But it was somebody they really found admirable, and they modeled themselves on that. So I find that interesting. Um, they were also people who had uh, cognitive flexibility. Uh, I'll tell, talk a little bit more about that in a second. But by cognitive flexibility, they were able to look at things. From different ways. So like an indicator of cognitive flexibility would be humor. You know, so it's like people are cracking jokes. You know, and we know as physicians, we're often accused of having dark or black humor. And, you know, like what's wrong with you? That's not funny. But the truth is, like, sometimes that's what you, you know, you got to have that to kind of weather the issue. So that's kind of showing, uh, that's cognitive flexibility. Um, forgiveness, the ability to forgive would be a cognitively flexible thing. Uh, the ability to have gratitude under difficult circumstances uh, would be uh, cognitively flexible. Sometimes Christians actually get into sort of a rigid mindset, and that's something I would just counsel against. You know, if you find yourself in, you know, a real black and white kind of way of thinking, that can kind of help, can grind you down. So that's, so the resilient people were cognitively flexible. 
they were also people who were active problem solvers. So they weren't, they didn't just let things happen. They had this, there's a whole lot of stuff on self-efficacy. Like, so people who would just go out and do it. Um, and they kind of could solve puzzles. They were real interested in things. I, I've worked some with uh, people who are involved in support for special forces. And one of the, you know, one of the people who do, characteristics of people who do special operations is, one, is they're always like studying up on everything. Because there's, you know, there may be an opportunity to use this. And so they just get into stuff and, and do it. And I would really encourage you, if you pursue medical missions work, have, have these different interests. Pursue stuff. And even if it seems irrelevant or so on, um, that, that can be helpful to you in terms of being able to be resilient in difficult circumstances. Uh, the people who were resilient had this realistic optimism. So they kind of, they sort of had a good take on stuff. They weren't just the pessimistic people who were always kind of, oh, I bet this won't work out. But they were able to, to, um, kind of see a way. Now, the Pollyanna type optimism is not specifically not what they're talking about. So no, there is this kind of thing, well, it'll work out, don't worry about it, and so on. That's actually irritating, okay? And, <laughs> If you, I don't know if you've ever read Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl, but he talks about this specifically in Man's Search for Meaning about how you have these people. It's like, I think the Americans are about to invade, you know, and they're in Auschwitz and so on, and it wouldn't happen. You know, so that unrealistic optimism is actually a negative. But the realistic optimism is, is, was a characteristic of the resilient people. The people who were resilient also sought out social support. So they weren't loners. It was people who could turn to other people for for help and support and, you know, they weren't just trying to weather everything on their own. They had an inner moral compass, so they, you know, they kind of sort of knew what to do in a crisis. And I know, again, when we would present some of this material to the State Department, people actually pushed against the inner moral compass. In fact, after I left, they quit saying that because people were pushing back so much because, like, you just should do what they tell you, you know, quit pushing religion on us. But um, this is just what the, the research was, has shown, is that the people who have a sort of a sense of what's right and wrong despite the circumstances, they're people who weather the storm. Um, people who were resilient in this very secular research were people who drew from spiritual and religious resources. Now, you know, a lot of times when this is presented in a, you know, sort of another type of setting, people will be talking about mindfulness or, um, you know, Buddhist type stuff and so on. But the research on resilience and spirituality is largely done on Christians. And even when you read Southwick and Charney's books, these are people who said, you know, God really helped me through that difficult circumstance. I mean, this is not, this isn't the Eastern spirituality. This is, a lot of this work was done by my friend Harold Koenig at Duke, and it's like done on Southern Baptists in North Carolina. You know, these were the resilient people. Um, the people who were resilient also paid attention to their physical, mental, and emotional well-being. So they had, they were people who exercised a lot. I know in, in Baghdad, there used to be a saying when you were assigned to, to Baghdad that um, after your assignment, you would either be a hunk, a skunk, or a drunk, or a monk, that's what they said. So, so, but exercise, I said the hunk was the exercise part of that. And so, um, yeah, and so they would, uh, they, you know, because people who were, did well were, you know, out there in the gym all the time and doing stuff and, and whatever. Uh, there were people who paid attention to their mental well-being, so they're trying to stimulate themselves a lot. And there are people who attended to uh, their emotional control. So, you know, the guys who get angry and are, you know, throwing the scalpel or throwing things across the room and whatnot, these aren't the resilient people, okay? I mean, I grew up, or I was trained anyway in psychiatry in the Austin Powers era of psychiatry, you know, where it's just like, just do it if it feels good and all this and, you know, just whatever. That's actually not true. I mean, it's sort of just let your anger, you know, just vent your anger and you'll feel better. I mean... For those of you who've tried it, you usually feel worse. You know, it, that's how it typically works. And that's actually been demonstrated. It's, it's based on this so-called hydraulic model of your psyche that's uh, Freudian and so on. 
and, and then this catharsis model. There, I mean, for some people in a psychotherapy setting, you know that you know that that can work. But for just for the general public, that's not good. People who are um, resilient are people who have emotional regulation. They're good at emotional uh, regulation. They don't get upset easily. Um, and people who were resilient were able to find meaning in adversity. And they were people who took responsibility for their own emotional well-being. So they weren't always saying, you know, if only this had happened, it would have been so much better. Well, now, when I went through all these resilience factors, I'm thinking, you know, these aren't really even that independent of each other. For example, inner moral compass and religion and spirituality, I think those are naturally related. Um, also meaning in adversity. That seems to be related to religion or to inner moral compass. Well, um, I was presenting this material to the Foreign Service Nationals in um, Juba in South Sudan a few years ago. And, you know, for those of you who've been to South Sudan, there are a lot of Christians in South Sudan. And a lot of the people who work for USAID, for the U.S. government, who were South Sudanese were Christians. And so they've been through a lot. I mean, they go through a lot. They almost have no government there's just lots of violence and so on. And so this one guy raised his hand and he said, you know, for us, resilient, you know, the resilience factors aren't, it's like religion isn't number seven. I mean, religion, number seven is the basis for everything. For us, God is the basis of everything. It's not just one of a number of factors. <clears throat> and I, I felt kind of ashamed after he said that because that's exactly right. So now I put this rainbow over here because I don't, I don't want this for us to be a concept of some kind of secular appropriation of psychology, although we, you know, we want to appropriate it in an informed way. But everything we're talking about is in Christ because everything we do is, um, you know, is in Christ. So this, all these things are things that we would do in Christ. So we mentioned that for cognitive flexibility, these Christian traits of forgiveness and gratitude in particular are things that, uh, you know, that we have. So I, th- I kind of think Christians might have an edge on this. Uh, if you're cognitively flexible, you're probably more likely to be able to find meaning in adversity. Um, if you seek social support from other Christians, let's say, you're probably then able to, you know, attend better to your inner moral compass, your religious and spiritual resources, and your meaning in adversity. So it's all interrelated. So I really began to realize that some of this is, um, is just stuff we're supposed to be doing anyway. And it's worthwhile attending to. So for social affiliation, I got to thinking, okay, well, the author of Hebrews says, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. So he's telling us, you know, you're supposed to meet together as, a, as Christians. This is something we're admonished to do. In terms of cognitive flexibility, uh, Paul says in 1 Thessalonians, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. For meaning in adversity, uh, in Ephesians, and there, there are a lot of verses, there's a lot, I mean, I've got a whole notebook full of stuff on this, but meaning in adversity, of this gospel I was made a minister. To bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So for Paul, God is in control. Like all the, all the events, all the adversities, God's in control of that. There's a meaning behind everything, even if we can't detect it. Uh, inner moral compass, whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. So James is telling us, you gotta pay attention to your conscience. That's a really, that's a really important, uh, thing. For sturdy role models, we're told in, um, John 13, 15 by Christ, for I have set you an example that you also should do as I have done for you. So Christ is our ultimate example and, and we're told as Christians to follow uh, his example, but also with other Christians too. Uh, in James, James says, as an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. So 
there are Christian examples. We're admonished to do this thing. Um, for emotional management, this thing we talked about that's so important, James again, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. So he's saying, you know, that the intemperate person, that's not a godly characteristic. Um, for religion and spirituality, um, we have Paul saying, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live all live on all the face of the earth, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is not actually far from each of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. So this is Paul talking to these people in Athens and telling them, you all know there's God inside, and we all know there's God inside. And so we all have this need uh, for the Lord. And then uh, taking responsibility for yourself, this this, um, taking responsibility for your own emotional well-being. In Matthew 7, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a man who builds his house on the rock. So we're supposed to do stuff. You know, like, we're not just supposed to, maybe you disagree, but you often hear, let go and let God and so on. I don't think that's really the way we're supposed to be practicing the Christian faith. We're supposed to do stuff. I mean, it's actually, if you read the Bible objectively, you'll see it. Old and New Testament, the Gospels, Paul, everybody, he's telling you, you're responsible, you're responsible with my power inside, you're responsible to do, you know, to do stuff for God. So, um, so, I'm gonna leave this stillness a little bit for, for a few minutes from now. Um, so that's resilience. So I'm, I, you know, resilience is, I really think resilience is helpful, obviously. Um, but I looked in the Bible and I could not find any verse referencing resilience per se. Um, that may be in, uh, you know, some, the message or something, I don't know. But it wasn't, it wasn't in my usual Bibles. And so, uh, but there is this concept of endurance. And that's actually all over the place. Okay? So there's this term called upamone. Now, my brother teaches Greek at a seminary. And I was calling this hypomone. Because, you know, as doctors we know about hypo. But no, this is upo. It's called upomone. And this is this uh, persistence in the face of adversity from a motive of love. Okay? So it's, this is, and it's all over the New Testament. Sometimes it's translated as patience or patient endurance or endurance. But that, that's the word is often usually upamone. So motivated by unselfish love and honor. So, in the, for example, in Psalm 37, 7, in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, uh, where it says, be still before the Lord, wait patiently for him. That word in Greek is upamone. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. So we're supposed to wait patiently. That means endure. So we're supposed to endure the difficult things. So I think there's this overlap between endurance and resilience. Okay, um, The Lord admonishes us to endurance. For example, in the parable of the sower in Luke 8, uh, at, toward the end he says, As for that... In the good soil, the seed, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with, and that word is upamone, so bear fruit with patience. So that's, in my mind, that's what our labor for the Lord should be in these difficult circumstances, this patient endurance. Um, In Luke 21, you will be hated by all because of my name. But not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your soul. So, you know, just going up, you know, sign the card, go up front, give your life to the Lord, and then forget about it. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about committing yourself to him and then walking in the way and, or the work that he's called us to. Continue on. If you're sure he's called you to it, continue on in that work. Um, 
is uh, here's this thing where Paul's talking about endurance in Second Corinthians, and uh, it's Second Corinthians six, and he's talking about all the things they've gone through, and he uses this word upamone, and I've highlighted some. But as servants of God, we have commended ourselves in every way through great endurance. So he's just stuck with it. Uh, in afflictions and hardships and calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, and hunger. So he apparently hadn't heard about the prosperity gospel. Um, beatings, imprisonment, uh, let's say by purity. So he's enduring in these other things. By purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, holiness of spirit and genuine love, truthful speech and the power of God with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left. In honor and dishonor, he's continued. So they don't like you because of your you know, beliefs on sexuality or whatever. You know, we, we're just supposed to do that. We're supposed to be faithful. In ill repute and good repute. So they tarnish our names or whatever. They lie, whatever they do. We are treated as impostors and yet are true. As unknown and yet are well known. As dying and see we're alive. As punished and not and yet not killed. As sorrowful yet always rejoicing. As poor yet making many rich. As having nothing and yet possessing everything. So that's actually what we're called to do in the work of God, according to my reading of this. Um, endurance also, I think, helps form our Christian character through the Holy Spirit. So here's from Romans 5, 1 to 5. Therefore, since we are justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we obtained access to this grace in which we stand. And we boast in our hope of sharing the glory of God. And not only that, but we also boast in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not disappoint us because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. So, I'm seeing actually a little bit of a a progression here, and it wasn't the one you would expect. I was expecting anyway. So it actually starts with the suffering. So we suffer, and then we endure. So in this, this work that God calls us to, where the, you know, we're just laboring in our, you know, missionary efforts and like the miracle stories aren't coming or maybe people don't seem to be coming to the Lord or everyone's fighting and they're supposed to be Christians. So suffering produces endurance and then endurance, this faithful endurance produces character. So our character starts to get better. And then our character starts making us have this sense of hope in the Lord. This is, that's the progression I'm seeing. And he's saying the, this hope isn't going to disappoint us because God's love is poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. Um, finally, we have the example of all these people who've gone before us in enduring. And this is really sobering when you think about the kind of plush lives we often live. Um, so... Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance. And this, that's this word, upamone. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So he's, he's our example, and then we know this is like this whole set of examples is leading up to this example of Christ when, when Paul's talking about enduring. So my hope would be that the endurance, how are we now on time? The endurance would, um, the resilience will help us to make, to do the endurance that we're supposed to do, we're called to do. And I'm thinking this is a virtue, this is virtuous, because we're looking ahead, it's prudent, we're looking ahead, we're, we're thinking about how the Lord is gonna, um, help us, uh, to do, do this thing that we're supposed to do through these resilience factors. Most of which, 
not all, but most of which are things we're supposed to be doing anyway uh, as, a, as, a, as a Christians. Um, I want to mention now this uh, verse that I, that I found that just kind of I came to me. I read the, read the Psalms a lot. I'll mention this in a second. But um, the, um, in Psalm 145, um, it has this verse. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures throughout all generations. The Lord is faithful in all his words and gracious in all his deeds. He uphold, the Lord upholds all who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. So this is kind of the Christian notion of resilience, because the Lord is raising us up. And um, I was looking into this verse, and I discovered this is actually a verse that's written on the door of the Grand Mosque in Damascus, Syria, because it's an old Byzantine church. And the Byzantines put this verse on here, and, um, and when it was taken over by the Muslims, they didn't take it off. And uh, they know what it says. For some reason, they just didn't take it off. And it actually says, Your kingdom, O Christ, on the door. It says, Your kingdom, O Christ, is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures throughout all generations. So, this is telling us, hey, regardless of whatever's going on in the political situation, whatever, you know, whatever catastrophic thing we think, we're part of this everlasting kingdom, the kingdom of God, and we're enduring in that kingdom by God's grace so that we'll be with him forever. And in the end, you know, it's his work. It's being part of his kingdom. It's not about us or, you know, how we feel and so on, although God wants us to feel. You know, he wants our happiness, but we're not always going to be happy. We know that for sure. Um, so that is, uh, that's kind of our final end point. Now, I wanted to just mention before I finish up the, um, the Psalms, because when I was doing the, the, the work on resilience, a lot of times people are talking about um, mindfulness. And, they, you know, they're saying, you know, the mindfulness is a really good thing to practice. And I have a German psychiatrist friend, Arndt Barocca, and he, um, he, he's a very prominent guy in his community. And he was telling me that he, he, he's a Christian, and he said he, he, didn't, he wasn't really comfortable with mindfulness. It's not part of our tradition as Christians. And he, he didn't really want to go along with that, even though the German you know, psychiatric establishment, like everywhere else, is kind of promoting this. And I got to thinking, well, do we have anything, you know, in the Christian faith that sort of might be related? Um, and I, d- I discovered, well, I don't know if it's, it's probably not mindfulness per se, but I found it to be a very helpful practice. And that is reading through the Psalms regularly. Okay? And that's a really old Christian practice. So I don't add, I don't suggest you do that in lieu of your day, daily kind of devotional stuff. But if you pray the Psalms regularly, and make these prayers your own, you're going to be doing something that Christians have literally done for centuries and centuries. Um, so um, uh, Athanasius has a whole book on this uh, uh, that he wrote to a guy named Marcellinus where he goes through each and every psalm and tells you how you can pray it for yourself. So it's, uh, it's a little tricky to pray the psalms, but I want to commend it to you. And um, the reason it's tricky is because they're imprecatory psalms, you know, so they're cursing the enemies, you know, and the, you know, I think it's Psalm 109 where he's like cursing the enemy, the enemy's children. He hopes they'll never have children. He, you know, it's just all kind of things or, you know, there's others like this. So when you read about how to pray this as a Christian, because we do need to pray them through the New Testament lens, uh, we want to, to pray them uh, against the forces of evil. So I don't think we really want to pray against our enemies, although it's tempting in that kind of real cursing way. But we want to pray against the devil and his works. Um, so just a little quick guide to put you on this pathway for further reference. Um, so Psalms are a resource for building resilience and endurance because they're an example of a prayerful attitude and strategy. So my prayer life changed once I started praying the Psalms because you start seeing how the psalmist is praying. And in fact, this, this one... Uh, I, Everybody loves the Psalms. You know, it's very, uh, very ecumenical. And this one Catholic priest who read this paper I'd written on the Psalms, uh, he pointed out to me that all the Bible is God's word 
to us except the Psalms, which contains inspired words to him. So I thought that was a really interesting observation. And I think if you pray the Psalms correctly, um, you'll find that to be true. So they're an example of a prayerful attitude and strategy. They contain prayers for the traumatized. So if you read some like Psalm 44 or Psalm 77, those are really about people who've been through difficult circumstances. You can see kind of how their thinking goes, how David's thinking or whoever wrote it goes. Um, in um, uh, Psalm 19, it taught it, the, the connections between the way the universe is set up and the law of God is there. I mean, there are all these interesting things that you find yourself thinking about. It's a template for traumatized people who have trouble finding words or concepts that capture their experiences. Because if you read something like Psalm 102, it's this kind of very depressed guy. He's, he can't sleep, he's up all night, and so on. And you realize, wow, people who are godly, who are whose experiences are contained in the Bible, these are people who went through these difficult times too. So I... Just because I'm going through this doesn't mean there's something necessarily wrong with me as a Christian. Um, they're an inoculation against cynicism. There are no atheist psalms. Uh, even Psalm 88, which is the most depressing of all the psalms, it kind of ends up with darkness is my friend. It starts out, O Lord God of my salvation. And then it gets into all this more depressing Kind of stuff, but there's it's a it, so there there's no there, it will help us against cynicism. It gives us a way to understand our suffering. It helps us to connect with Christians in all previous ages because you'll find that Christians every single century have been praying the Psalms, um, and it'll um, help enhance our resilience and foster our endurance. So I'm uh, going to close now. So I'll just summarize. So I think Christian health workers have unique stresses. We're an at-risk population, so we need to be prudent and watch out for our resilience and endurance. The Christian practices of prayer, worship, and fellowship are critical to enduring in the Christian life. Reflect on the resilience factors and try to develop them, develop those that make sense to you. So you don't have to do each and every one, but think about the ones that you'd like to work on and do that. Monitor your resilience, get input from others, and work with colleagues to maintain your resilience and endurance. And use Christian practices such as praying the Psalms so that with God's help, you can strengthen your resilience and your endurance. So we'll stop there. Any questions or thoughts or anything before we close in the few minutes we have? The stillness? <laughs> what? Yeah, the stillness. I would get, well, they're showing me time slides, but I can't show, but the stillness, if you want to look in the stillness, Psalm 46, you know, Psalm 37, Psalm 37 is, uh, waiting on God. It's all about, you know, you're in this angry state of mind and you're, you're, how to wait on God. And Psalm 46 is about the catastrophes, you know, um, of, of the earth. And how everything's coming apart. And then in the end, in verse 10, is saying, you know, be still and know that I am God. So, uh, but th- there's more too. <laughs> All right. Okay. Well, thank you.